Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, December 1st, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. So the U.S. has been countering the threat of Salafist jihadi terror groups around the world since even before September 11, 2001. But after 9-11, those operations put U.S. and allied forces into places like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and other locations around the globe. Since Americans generally lack the language skills to speak to local leaders and local people in general, and you must be able to communicate with the local people to succeed in defeating terrorist groups or insurgent movements, we've usually hired locals who have strong language skills to work for, for and with us. Those people are referred to as interpreters. And they've saved lives time and time again among our U.S. military personnel. When the U.S. ends our role in these conflicts, there's been some debate, especially lately, as to what the U.S. owes our interpreters for the service they've given to our nation. We're going to explore that question today, and our guest is retired U.S. Army Colonel Steve Miska, who is uniquely positioned to explain this topic to us in great detail. Steve Miska serves on the steering committee of Evacuate Our Allies Coalition, a humanitarian and veteran-led effort to evacuate Afghan partners from conflict and Iraqi partners as well. In 2007, on his second of three combat tours, Steve led a team that established an underground railroad for dozens of interpreters from Baghdad to get to Amman, Jordan, and eventually to the United States. His book, Baghdad Underground Railroad, chronicles that story, and we'll talk a little bit more about that book later. He earned top academic honors as a counterterrorism fellow at the College of International Security Affairs and has taught economics at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Colonel Miska's experiences in Iraq and his education in counterterrorism eventually led to his service during the Obama administration as director for Iraq on the National Security Council. Steve Miska holds degrees from Cornell University, the National Defense University, and from West Point. He's the executive director of First Amendment Voice, a nonpartisan effort to reinvigorate civic awareness around free expression, religious liberty, press freedom, and other First Amendment issues. And he founded Servant Leader Citizen, or SLC Consulting Incorporated, after retiring as a colonel with 25 years in the Army. Steve and his wife of 29 years have two children, and he resides in Southern California. Colonel Steve Miska, welcome to National Security This Week. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be here. So where are you at in California? So I'm in San Clemente, which is actually a Marine town. So it's it a is. little rough place for an Army guy, <laughs> yeah. you know, but, but I get along with my Marine buddies. Okay, fair enough. So, Steve, we, I generally start our show every week uh, by discovering a little bit more about the backgrounds from our guests. Uh, and that said, can you tell us a little bit about your career path in the Army, your commission at West Point? I'm a Navy grad. I won't, I won't hold that against you or anything. But what were you know what year were you commissioned? What did you select for your specialty? And and Tell us a little bit about the units you deployed with to Iraq. Sure, sure, yeah. I, well, I grew up on Long Island, and I was a bit of a latchkey child. So uh, when my dad said at the age of 16, my dad was a Vietnam vet, and he said uh, at the age of 16, um, you know, you should consider going to West Point. And I said, what's West Point? You know, <laughs> here I am living in New York. I don't even know what West Point is. And uh, so I started looking into it, and I was fortunate enough to get accepted and and go. We actually beat Navy three out of the four years I was there. All right. But, okay. You know, okay. Uh, <laughs> but I graduated in 1990 and then um, commissioned infantry because I had already started jumping out of perfectly good airplanes and, you know, realized that uh, I enjoyed doing that for some strange reason. And um, then headed to Panama on my first assignment. 
and uh, really loved that. It came back to Fort Bragg and served in the 82nd Airborne Division as well. So uh, a lot of time in the Airborne Infantry up front. And uh, then uh, I was being pushed to either go to the Ranger Regiment and keep doing more of what I had been doing or uh, go teach at West Point um, by some of my mentors. And I was fortunate enough to I, I thought about it, you know, basically saying I wasn't a really good student the first time around. Maybe this is a second <laughs> chance for me. Yeah. And uh, I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. But then, uh, you know, a rock came around and I was in the uh, first infantry division over in Germany at the time and just pretty much got stuck in the Iraq do loop of deployments, yeah. did three combat tours there for a total of 40 months. And um, then ended up uh, when I got back going to Washington, D.C. and doing three combat tours there, yeah. you know, which are <laughs> completely different type of combat. Um, so anyway, yeah, the, the units were, were fantastic that I worked with in Iraq and uh, the, the experiences were really foundational in a lot of ways. So let's let, let's uh, drill down a little bit uh, on your experiences in Iraq because that's going to inform a lot of our discussion on this topic today. Uh, you you led soldiers in very difficult combat conditions, and you worked with local leaders to establish security for their for their villages. And then a term we use in the military, which you know well, we we sought to find, fix, and quote unquote finish uh, insurgent forces trying to defeat them. Uh, tell us about the dangers your soldiers faced under these conditions, uh, dealing with a, a pretty, pretty resilient insurgent force in Iraq. Yeah, it was, it was uh, pretty kinetic in 2004. I was up in Tikrit, which was where the first century division headquarters um, was, but uh, our battalion, the, the first of the 18th infantry was in charge of the city. And, um, trying to basically chase down a lot of Saddam's old cronies at that time. Um, so IEDs were, were the main threat. And at that time, especially with Sunni insurgents, they were relatively unsophisticated IEDs, but very innovative in how they were employed. Right. And so it was, you were always on edge when you were on patrol and you're out. Uh, we didn't have a lot of up armored Humvees, at the time, we were running with soft skin vehicles, and so we put a lot of Kevlar blankets down, and we we were all open air, so it literally looked like rat patrol. Yeah. Um, I sat up top with you know an ear uh, mic in my head in my ear there to be able to talk um, in the vehicle. With the, I was the operations officer for the battalion, and uh, the battalion commander and I were out usually two or three times a day. Um, some many times aids at night, but what I can tell you, cause I, I, I get what you're trying to get for your, your listeners out there. And so there's one vignette that really sticks in my mind. We were asked to go down to Samara. Um, the insurgents had literally taken over the city and it was maybe 15, 20 miles South of Tikrit. And um, our sister battalion had not been allowed to occupy inside of the city. They had to stay out of the city, which is how the insurgents regain control. Right. Whereas we strongly argued we need to be with the people. We need to be amongst the people in order to you know, protect the populace. So um, prior to that operation, the entire brigade did a couple of test runs. We, we used to call them Friday night fights. We would go down on Friday and it would be late night and we'd have, you know, the combat power massed outside the city. And we're sitting there just watching the city of Samara and you can just see the tracers just going back and forth and things are, you know, super kinetic RPGs flying. And um, our soldiers are there watching that, knowing that in the next few minutes, they're going to be in the middle of that stuff. Yeah. And what was so impressive to me was, you know, these are young men and women who basically signed up knowing they were going to war yeah. when they enlisted. And, you know, you could have had a lot of conscientious objectors or people just getting really freaked out about it, but they were so disciplined 
And we would just roll into that madness, you know, for we did that three Fridays in a row before we finally went down and occupied the entire city. And uh, to see that, you know, everybody was with the team and and willing to trust in the leadership that that we were going to bring them back out of harm's way, you know, was really pretty impressive. So as a leader, you know, and, and we know this, right, we we are personally responsible for the young men and women that we're leading. Uh, and that said, you know, what role did interpreters play in supporting you uh, as a commander, as a senior leader, uh, and supporting your men and women on, on these missions? Tell us about the interpreters a bit. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because we, we train in uh, the U.S. to, you know, and we're very focused as, as leaders on our men and women. Uh, you know, we, we've got a debt that we owe America's moms and dads who who are, you know, sending their sons and daughters off to war. And um, and then we meet these amazing Iraqi or Afghan or Syrian or whatever conflict zone we happen to find ourselves in people. And we realize, hey, they're vital members of the team, too. They're our cultural eyes, ears and mouthpieces. They're the, the people who help us understand the contours of the population and help us mitigate any damage that we might do due to our lack of cultural understanding. Right. And so they quickly become members of the team. They go on patrol with us every day. They share the same risks and they help our soldiers interface. They, they go into meetings with me every day day and help me understand, you know, why this shake or police chief is trying to ask me for whatever favor he's asking me for, right? And then how to effectively respond. So, you know, they're they're vital. We couldn't do the mission without them. So they help you kind of navigate a lot of those uh, those cultural nuances that we will just never understand as foreigners. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we 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 wouldn't know, you know, we understand you understand in Minnesota, right? The cultural norms. I could come to Minnesota as somebody who grew up on Long Island and lives in Southern California and be a bit of a fish out of water, even though I'm an American. Right. And and it's just exacerbated in a place like Iraq or Afghanistan. Yeah, and, and how do we uh, how do we find uh, these interpreters when we go into these countries? I mean, a, a lot of them obviously have to speak English so we can talk to them. Uh, do they come and apply for jobs? Do we screen them locally? How, how does that process work? Yeah, so this is an interesting aspect of a lot of the, the work that I do because it's um, we go to war now with defense contractors, mm-hmm. and the defense contracting community they, really it's a, uh, the, the government contracting community is more appropriate word because the other departments and agencies also need interpreters and other local national partners that they work with, and so they have the screening protocols where they hire and um, bring on the people who we need in country. We, we also have Americans who go with us, right? And those are the ones who have clearances. Mm. They are able to go into higher, uh, you know, operational security type environments that we wouldn't let somebody go into without a security clearance. Um, but in general, we need thousands of local national interpreters and other people doing logistics and other things for our bases um, and our defense contractors do the screening. And so what's interesting is these, they tend to be some of the most highly vetted people anywhere in the world. They're getting polygraphs every six months. They're getting interviewed by counterintelligence professionals and assessed based on security risks. So um, yeah, they're the, the system is is well established now. Yeah, so America is blessed in that we have a lot of uh, uh, immigrants who come to our country, and uh, when we can take advantage of that uh, that native knowledge of other countries where we might have to send forces, those are the Americans, you know, new Americans or second generation Americans who speak the lo- these local languages and are willing uh, to to put their lives on the line for the ideals that America stands for. So they sign up and either join the military or are willing to become defense contractors, and that's one of the reasons why we are able to give them these uh, clearances, top secret or secret level clearances, to come and work with us. Uh, that that process of you know having them 
right there with us. They there there just aren't enough of them. So you have to go and hire local nationals uh, to serve in other capacities. Is that is that a good summary of? of, of yeah, the exactly. And you you know uh, of the three dozen guys I helped get out of Baghdad in 2007, six of the, at least six that I know of enlisted in either the U.S. Army or Marines and then deployed back to combat as combat linguists. And and their skills are incredibly vital. Wow. Um, yeah. I'll give you another example, too. Yeah. Two of those guys, after they served out their enlistments, went to work for a defense contractor in Tampa. And one of the last things they were doing was counter ISIS messaging on social media. Right. <laughs> I mean, no native-born American no. could do that. No. Right. I no mean, way. we don't we don't understand Islam. We don't understand you know the Iraqi culture, the Syrian culture where ISIS was operating. Um, so their their skills are just so incredibly vital. Yeah, and, and those are folks who are going to understand all those uh, tribal and familial uh, linkages that exist in that particular region, which is something, again, we will never truly understand as, you know, most Americans just don't get that, right? Exactly. And, and to this day, like even in my book, I still needed to use their nom de guerres, right? Because yeah. their families would be at risk if if I disclosed their real names, exactly because of your point about tribal linkages. Yeah. If you know somebody's real name, you know what tribe they're from and pretty much what town they're from, and you can track them down. So let, let's talk about that a more in just a second. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired U.S. Army Colonel Steve Miska, and we're discussing the role of interpreters who've supported the U.S. military in combat zones and the U.S. responsibility to those individuals and their families. Uh, okay, so so once interpreters have worked for us, as you just mentioned, they, they sort of become marked, marked men, marked women maybe, uh, by the insurgents, and both they and their families will pretty much always be in danger, which is why you just mentioned they, they have a gnome de guerre, right? Uh, tell us about establishing the Underground Railroad to get Iraqi interpreters out of Iraq through Jordan and resettled here in America. Let's let's kind of go sure. through that whole process. How, how'd you come up with the idea? Let's start with that. Well, let's set the context at the time. You know, we're talking 2006 and seven, and at the the 12 months leading up to the the story that I recount in the book, every month over 3,000 Iraqi civilians were being killed uh, because of the violence. So that is a 9-11 scale level of trauma being inflicted on this society every month. And that's internal um, fighting in their civil war, jockeying for power and control, right? The insurgents Exactly. It, it was basically extremist on both sides. Uh, you had al-Qaeda and Sunni insurgents, mm -hmm. and you also had Shia militia. And they were just ravaging each other's civilian populations. Yeah. Um, and there were torture houses. There were, you know, all kinds of gruesome activity going on. And anybody who was was working alongside of Americans was targeted by all sides. Right. right. And right. sometimes people in the government. Yeah. Um, so it was super risky. And so in I think it was January of 2007, my personal uh, local national interpreter Jack was killed by Sunni insurgents. He had gone home to Samara and um, his wife had just given birth to stillborn twins. She was wow. distraught. He was distraught. We begged him not to go. He had been threatened by insurgents previously. And, you know, a day later, his dad called from Jack's cell phone to let us know that he had been shot and killed in the street by Sunni insurgents. Um, Two weeks after that, Nadal, this beloved Iraqi store owner who was supporting our troops on this small base we were on, was gunned down by Shia militia in the Shula neighborhood in Baghdad. Um, and previous to that, George Packer, who, had, who was writing at The New Yorker at the time, he's with The Atlantic now, he had embedded with me and he just released a story right after Nadal was killed. Basically, it was a 15,000-word story with a one-word title, and the title was Betrayed. And it was basically talking about how the U.S. was not standing by those who were most close to them in our conflict zone. And he was absolutely right. And so uh, 
Uh, Mike had decided, you know, we can't look ourselves in the mirror unless we try to do something to help these guys. Yeah. And so that was the genesis of the Baghdad Underground Railroad. And what was, you know, the Underground Railroad part was interesting because Embassy Baghdad had closed its doors to interviewing Iraqis, um, citing that it was too dangerous. They had to go to Embassy Amman in Jordan. Well, the Jordanians had closed the border right. to Iraqis because they had a refugee crisis on their hands. So it was a yeah. built-in catch-22 in the process. Yeah. Um, and for those of us who have worked in government, that will come as no surprise right. that <laughs> we would have a catch-22 built yeah. into the process. But, um, And the other thing was just the special immigrant visa itself, which had just been legislated by Congress. The bureaucracy was so insane. I mean, it... John Oliver has done a 15 minute segment just lampooning how maddening it can be. Um, So, and it's still that way in a lot of ways, it's still bad. Uh, But anyway, at the time we just realized no Iraqi is going to be able to figure this out. We can't even figure it out. Right. And so we just started helping them process packets and ultimately uh, got the pipeline going. So what what hurdles did you have to overcome to to build this quote unquote underground railroad? I mean, what what impediments do exist? I mean, specifically, if you can name them uh, in U.S. law, that made it difficult uh, to achieve the objective of saving the lives of these these young men and their families uh, who had saved American lives in combat zones uh, in Iraq specifically. Yeah. So well, I mentioned you know the the catch twenty two right. That was a major impediment. But then. Uh, the, the legislation itself initially only off, authorized 50 visas, and that was between <laughs> Iraq and Afghanistan. So you're talking, you know, we've got thousands of interpreters in right. both countries. Many of them are at risk. I, Iraq was really on fire at the time. And uh, so Ambassador Crocker, General Petraeus, others were really just hammering Washington. You've got to expand this program. Mm-hmm. 50 is a ridiculous number. Yeah. So the next year, Congress authorized 500, which was a step in the right direction, but still not <laughs> close to meeting the need. And I have no idea how our team did it, but we were able to capture, you know, about three dozen of that 500 just in our small, you know, task force in, in uh, northwest Baghdad. Um, but those were some of the, the friction points. And, they, it, you know, it it continues to be a problem. It, it's, it's a problem every year we deal with it. Um, and, and let me just give you another vignette. Yeah, please. The, uh, we just, and I know we're going to talk about Afghanistan later, but this one really hammers home the point that it had a Afghan guy who was approved for asylum. He's physically in the state of Maryland. His wife and two daughters by some miracle had escaped Kabul in August, not by the U S government evacuation. And they were in Qatar. But the Qataris, they were at the behest of the Qataris, right? So they gave him a 30-day visa. So I get called on day 28. And the husband's thinking of sending his wife and two girls back to Afghanistan. And I said, do not do that. Do not do that. I'll never get them out. Yeah, so we've got, um, you know, immigration lawyers and other advocates who are in our, our team. And basically, we start digging into this case. Well, we find out that the mother and two daughters, their asylum cases have also been approved. They just don't know what to do with the paperwork because they can't send it back to the embassy in Kabul. It no longer exists. Right. And they have no idea where the family is. Yeah. So and on top of it, they can't do it digitally. It's got to be the physical paperwork has to get there. So we, you know, we got ambassadors and consul generals involved and we finally get it taken care of. But it feels like every single case, even today, requires extreme levels of intervention at, at top levels of the U.S. government in order to get some sort of resolution. The, the immigration system then in 2007 was dysfunctional, and it's not any better today. So it sounds to me that uh, from what you're saying, and I, I'm not an expert, but uh, I mean, the executive branch executes the laws that Congress creates. So DOD, State Department, they're sort of stuck in this catch-22 situation because they have to execute based on what the laws say they can and cannot do. 
so a lot of these these problems in the immigration system are, could easily be fixed if Congress stepped up to the plate to fix it. Is that kind of what you're saying? Well, so it, it, both parties are at fault, right? Okay. So, um, so lack of competence issue. on the executive branch side? Or, it's, or? it's just, you know, levels of dysfunction in execution okay. as well. You know, Congress, by law, has mandated that any special immigrant visa applicant, their case gets processed within nine months. Okay. Which, I mean, think about that. Number one, because I talked about some of the risks that they're facing. Right. You've got to wait nine months in that type of risk setting in order to get some sort of determination. But the executive branch has not been able to achieve nine months. It's been like two, three, four years in oh. many cases. Um, and, you know, every time there's a uh, an accounting office sort of review uh, they come back and they say, you know, we're failing to meet the the law's requirements here. And there's nobody really is being held accountable. Yeah. All right, Steve. So an Iraqi interpreter gets to the United States. Uh, let's let's fast forward in this process a little bit. Their, their SIV has been approved uh, or asylum has been granted, whatever. What happens next in their lives? I mean, how, how do they get settled here in the United States? What kind of public-private partnerships exist uh, to help these folks start new lives in our country? So, yeah, that's a great question. In 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 2007, there didn't really exist a lot of the great nonprofits that exist today. Okay. So at that time, I just mandated that uh, we're not even going to submit an SIV application for you unless you've got a sponsor in the U.S. And usually it was up to the service member to find the sponsor. Um, because most of these, you know, young Iraqi males, their image of what it was going to be like was, you know, grossly inaccurate. (laughs) Right. And so I I had to tell them, I'm like, look, there's not going to be a welcoming party at JFK airport when you land. (laughs) And Pamela Anderson is not going to be your girlfriend because, you know, they grew up watching Hollywood and like, no, it's, it's really hard to make a living in the U S you've got to work hard. Um, so we had sponsors, but nowadays we've got organizations like Miri's List and No One Left Behind and organizations. The resettlement agencies are highly active in helping uh, within the limits of the law. They're very constrained by Congress. The, uh, the nine resettlement agencies like Lutheran Immigration Refugee Services and Catholic World Services and some of the others. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the, the nonprofits really fill that void. So you've got uh, the International Refugee Assistance Project, which are amazing lawyers who advocate on behalf of vulnerable refugees, and they help uh, with getting here. But then when they do get here, that's where groups like Miri's List step in, and they help on the, the softer side of things with skills, everything from you know, uh, job applications and how to write a resume to um, how to network into your community a bit better and help the women get comfortable because they're coming from a very different culture and background um, and other, you know, basic needs as well they help with. So it sounds like there is a, a fairly good network that has developed over time to support uh, these these interpreters uh, once we get them here to the United States, which I guess is is a good news part of this story. Yeah, it's um, they, they're amazing. I'm uh, truth in advertising. I'm on the advisory board of a bunch of these organizations, um, but the you know, the, the good news is they've stepped in to fill the gaps in our immigration system, at least on the, the assimilation side, right? The transitioning into American society. Um, there still are lots of problems with the immigration system writ large, right. which you know, <laughs> we talked about. Yeah. Uh, so, Steve, how, how rewarding has it been for you personally to be a part of this effort to get America's friends uh, out of danger and resettled in our nation, uh, given that these heroic uh, men and, and, their, and women and, and their families, giving them an opportunity to start a new life and to live in, hopefully, safety and freedom? It, it's, you know, this is how I continue to serve after taking off my uniform. And, and uh, as you know, as somebody who has served, uh, that service is a reward in and of itself. It, right? it is. It's, it is. Yeah. And um, 
So I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, in 2007, as we were getting interpreters out, this Iraqi general came to me and he said, Miska, Miska, I need you to help my family. You know, everybody was trying to kill this guy. Right. Al Qaeda was after him. Shia militia was, were after him. Um, and uh, he had five kids. And I said, you know, you don't qualify for the SIV. I don't know what to do. And I, I did run it up to the highest levels in, in Iraq to see, is there anything we can do? And the answer just kept coming back. We, do, we don't have legal options for this family. So I uh, talked to a journalist. Um, is the media uses local national stringers and fixtures all the time to get to stories in conflict zones. Right. And when they get in trouble, a lot of times they'll do things to, you know, relocate and extract people from harm's way. Um, and a CNN journalist helped me get this family to Turkey. Okay. Um, because I was based in Germany at the time, I didn't have, you know, there was no way the Germans were going to let an American bring an Iraqi family into their country. Right. That just wasn't going to happen. Right. Right. So uh, I ended up doing what most soldiers do. When they're in a bind, uh, I called my mom, you know, I'm a 39 year old <laughs> lieutenant colonel in the army commanding troops. But I call my mom and I said, Mom, I need a sponsor for this family. She swears I didn't tell her how many kids were involved. But um, but I absolutely did tell her the one catch was that he, he might have two wives when he shows up. I begged him not to marry this second woman, but. He said it's in, you know, looks good in the eyes of Allah to take care of this, you know, single woman. And uh, so anyway, the general, his two wives and his five kids moved in with my mother for about two months in Southern Maryland. Um, so just this Thanksgiving, uh, my wife and I flew back and we were able to celebrate Thanksgiving. And the oldest daughter of the kids at the time brought her latest baby in to celebrate with her American grandmother and they call me uncle. Right. And so the fact that, you know, we pretty much know this family would not be alive today if we didn't take some action, you know, and to see her two little girls, you know, and all celebrate together an Iraqi meal the night before Thanksgiving and then Thanksgiving together, you know, that just um, is super rewarding. That is a that is a great story. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired U.S. Army Colonel Steve Miska, and we're discussing the role of interpreters who've supported the U.S. military in combat zones around the world, and also the U.S. responsibility to those individuals and their families. So, Steve, you've also become deeply involved in helping to extract Afghan interpreters, uh, with the goal being to get them out of Afghanistan and, and to either a, a safe third country or, or eventually here to the United States. What challenges currently exist with that mission right now? And, and I'm going to ask you to be as blunt and direct as you want. This is a current, very difficult problem set for America, since we no longer have any American presence in Afghanistan. Uh, so what's going on with that situation right now? Sure. Yeah. Blunt has never been a problem for me. <laughs> as, uh, I'm sure you can probably tell. Um, well, you know, a after the decision to withdraw, um, I got involved, I got asked to assist with a lot of um, humanitarian organizations, veteran service organizations and others that were really anxious about our Afghan partners um, because I've been doing a lot of uh, research and policy development work in that space ever since, you know, 2007. Um, and as, as we all saw the train wreck coming, you know, in August, I ended up standing up in um, an operations center in LA where we staffed it with 20 people in person, 24 seven, and um, started assisting these organizations. We're not staffed to handle the tens of thousands of cases out there, but what we do do is uh, we will refer organizations to each other inside the evacuation pipeline. If we get direct cases, um, we never... It's going to pick up the phone and talk, but um, if, it's, if it's a case of Afghans in harm's way, we will find the right organization in the ecosystem 
and refer them to, you know, this veteran operation that is managing safe houses inside of Afghanistan or somebody that knows how to manifest people onto flights getting out of Mazar-e-Sharif or um, if it's a high enough level target and the Taliban are, are tracking them, maybe we need to do something else to help them get across a border into another country and then work other channels. So um, I'll give you one example. Uh, this just came in this morning. Um, retired Army Sergeant Major, and he emails our entire um, uh, coalition, which is over 100 nonprofits now in this in this just one coalition. We support two different coalitions that are working in this space right now. And uh, he basically says, you know, he starts off with a team. I really need assistance. And and that is pretty um, consistent with what we get in the veteran community. Uh, there's just really high levels of moral injury right now uh, with veterans who are getting reached out to by Afghans and Iraqis, too, still. Um, and the Afghans are just saying, you know, we're, we're getting hunted. We're being targeted. We, we need help. Yeah. You know, we've worked alongside you for years. And so he's got 10 families who he's gotten hiding for various reasons. And he's he's highlighting this one female doctor who she's, you know, in contact with him on WhatsApp probably every day and just explaining the risks and what's going on. And it's really creating a lot of stress. Um so my team, we operate on two principles. One is humility and the idea that, you know, us in Los Angeles, 9,000 miles away, we can tell somebody what to do in a life-threatening situation is insane to me. Yeah. All we can do is provide context and the best information we can so that they can weigh the risks themselves and make their own decisions. And then the second principle is empathy. We'll always pick up the phone, whether it's a vet calling in about their Afghans or an Afghan calling in direct. And we're going to talk to them and try to understand their circumstances and then make a referral as best we can to help them out. Yeah, you mentioned uh, that kind of moral injury that our our veterans, uh, fellow veterans are feeling over this situation. So like you are, you're a great example. You serve side by side. I had an opportunity to do that a little bit myself in Afghanistan uh, with with people who who are taking the same risks we are. In fact, they're taking greater risks because they're going to be able they can be identified in their local community as as being connected directly to us and i think yeah. that uh, th- that that emotional bond that we create with those folks uh there's no way that a politician unless they've served in uniform or or some other capacity overseas in in a combat zone the political leaders in our country they just don't understand that connection that we have with those folks and why it's so important to us that we honor the uh, commitments that we made to them when when they came on and, and started serving with us is that is that a good way to sort of f- summarize that yeah and that that's where the the veterans in congress have been so helpful in mm-hmm. that regard because they get it right they served and um so they've helped uh but yeah it's we're living out an ethos which is instilled in us in our time and service of leave no one behind yeah and that's why uh, the veteran community and, you know, it's not just our generation. Vietnam veterans are animated about this. Right. They right. didn't want to relive the trauma of the fall of Saigon twice in one lifetime. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a real issue for us. I, I like to highlight to people that those of us who graduated from the service academies, you you from West Point. Uh, last week I had uh, Colonel Brett Siling on. He was a graduate of the Air Force Academy and, and I'm a graduate of the Naval Academy. Uh, one of the things that I, I try to make sure people understand is those those service academies are probably the premier leadership training institutions we have in our country. And they're training us to lead not not just for, you know, our short commitment that we have to the military after we are commissioned, but frankly to be leaders in our communities for the rest of our lives. And I and I think you're you're sort of highlighting that ethos right now as we've been talking through this discussion about, you know, what you and your organization and all the people that you're connected to have been doing. So I know that Team Rubicon has done some fantastic work 
supporting the Afghan refugee resettlement here in the U.S. We had their CEO, Art De La Cruz. I don't know if you know Art at all, but uh, he and I played hockey together at the Naval Academy on the same hockey team. Uh, he's also a, a Minnesotan by, uh, by birth. On, on the show a couple of months ago, talking about how Team Rubicon works with disaster relief and humanitarian assistance missions, but they've they've stepped up uh, as a as a veteran centric nonprofit. Uh, in this area, too. So from your perspective, what can you tell us about the work these kinds of veteran-centric organizations are doing to help former interpreters in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, or other places uh, over the past 20 years? Talk a little bit more about some of those organizations. Sure. Well, I I want to absolutely talk about Team Rubicon because um, I don't know art, but uh, I did get referred to Will McNulty, one of the two founders of Team Rubicon, when I went to LA, I was, I was heading up there, um, to stand up this operation that the Pacific council on international policy basically gave me their entire office suite in downtown LA. The, the president said, come in, you can have the entire office suite and run your operation out of there. Wow. And I said, thank you very much. And I might be, you know, asking some of your staff or maybe some <laughs> of your members to help me out with this. But what I quickly realized was, you know, we were getting a lot of well-meaning volunteers, you know, the little old lady who could donate three hours on Sunday. But that wasn't going to be that we needed we, we needed people who could commit and, and build the situational awareness over time because it's a super complex space. Right. Um, and so I told uh, uh, my colleague, you know, the first line in the call for volunteers needs to be pretty blunt it needs to say something along the lines of you need to quit your day job for the next two weeks, be willing to work 12 hour shifts a day, seven days a week. Sort of what are your questions? Yeah. <laughs> and um, and of course, who fits that mold? But people who are doing Team Rubicon work. And so I quickly got on the phone with Will McNulty. He started by name referring people to me and I would call, you know, Brian Peck down in uh, Galveston, Texas. And once he got, you know, permission from his wife, the very next day, he's on a plane to L.A. coming in to be one of the battle captains. We, we um, all have a boss, right? We all have a boss. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so anyway, we, probably half my team in the op center is our team Rubicon personnel who have been there, um, you know, and they, every once in a while they have to duck out and go out to like chainsaw training in San Diego or something. <laughs> but for the most part. They're, uh, you know, they've been consistently on the phones. Um, they know how to operate in disaster areas. This has definitely been a disaster. And then the other side, uh, the reception side here in the United States, Team Rubicon has been managing the distribution points on the eight U.S. military bases. They call them safe havens where Afghan refugees are. And so they, they're handling logistics and uh, supplying um, a lot of the materials that our, our refugees coming in need. And there are, there are a lot of other veteran organizations out there. Many started as a result of, you know, Afghanistan and, and what happened over the last six months. Yeah, and, I, and, and I'll be honest with you, from, from my perspective, we've had an explosion of, uh, of nonprofit organizations that fill niche areas of need that really our government should be picking up uh, that that responsibility in many of these areas, and it just—I mean, look at look at all the nonprofits to support American veterans, disabled veterans, and whatnot. All of that should already be provided by our government as part of that contract. When you sign up to serve, uh, you will you will receive that support indefinitely. And this is clearly yeah. a situation where, you know. Those of us who were called to serve are continuing to serve in areas where we really shouldn't have to do it, but the system just doesn't support things the way it should be. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to really lay it on the line. You said you you have no trouble being blunt. So if you were have a if you had a chance right now to sit down in front of congressional committees and advise Congress on how they can improve America in this area of supporting. Uh, you know, getting uh, interpreters who've worked for us in combat zones out. What policy changes would you recommend that Congress make, like, immediately? Uh, how how would you have Congress alter our immigration laws, as an example? What what guidance should Congress give to state and DOD with regard to interpreters hired to serve alongside American forces in, in future conflicts? What, what, what specific ideas come to your mind? 
So uh, I've actually got a, a white paper that we produced in this space. It's uh, the, the project uh, that was also run out of the Pacific Council. It's called Strategically Protecting Soft Networks. And soft networks are our local national partners who work alongside us in conflict zones. Um, and so the bottom line is uh, we don't do a good job of proactively insulating those who work alongside us, the local nationals. We, we, don't even, we don't even think about the threat when we're going into these conflict zones. Right. And, um, and so that's part of it is, is awareness and providing this um, policy tools that offer insulation to our closest partners, right? And it, it all revolves around identity protection, number one. And some of this could be legislated, but it could really be addressed through the executive branch as well uh, with education, training, awareness, preparation prior to deployment. Um, it also requires training for the people our defense contractors hire. We've got uh, a large portion of the defense contracting community plugged in to our coalition now. They're, they're just as distraught in many ways as the veteran community is by the, the fallout in Afghanistan. Um, and so that's part of it as well, developing the contracting language and policy that will enforce best practices across the commercial sector. Um, and uh, then uh, we just need to have better tools for relocation when the risk factors get out of control, right? And so guys like you and me in the conflict zone, we have other tools and and it shouldn't, the only tool shouldn't be like a special immigrant visa, which is an extreme relocation to a very different cultural right. place. It, we should be able to do some internal, internal to the country, you know, the province, wherever we're at, uh, ways to get people out of harm's way um, and it, it's like a mini witness protection program in many cases where we relocate them. We don't want to take them out of the fight. We need them in the fight, yeah. right? Their country needs them. They're the, the, you know, the future of their country in many cases. And so if we can do better at that of uh, keeping them alive and in the fight, um, those are the policy tools where I work on both in the physical space as well as the cyber space. Right. And um, I think the legislation uh, could help, you know, there, there would be appropriations in the National Defense Authorization Act. Right. That, that uh, would allow us to do that on the defense side. But it needs to be broader than just the military. Right. right. Our entire government faces this threat. It's a whole government it, approach. Right. Yeah. And, and it's it's not rocket science, no. John. Right. It's, <laughs> yeah. You know, when when I was writing my thesis on this, I. Uh, I was I was taking a class on grand strategy and looking at history. And what I realized was our founding fathers in this country used the same strategy against the British, the world superpower at the time, that our adversaries use against us now. They target their soft networks. They were going after loyalists in the colonies and tarring and feathering people, confiscating <laughs> their, their, you know, their property. And And so if we did it, you know, we should anticipate that our adversaries are going to do it to us. Yeah. You know, they're fighting from a position of weakness. It's, it's logical. It makes sense. So let's counter it. Let's not be flat footed and surprised in every conflict zone we go into. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, we often go over the last uh, 20, 30 years. We, we think more about it's going to be a conventional fight and we don't think about how, how it's not going to be a conventional fight. It's going to be very asymmetric, right? So, Steve, yeah. I'm going to give you the last word. What else do you want the American people to know about their interpreters who've supported American military forces for the past two decades? Yeah, well, so I mentioned, you know, veterans living out their ethos, right, of leave no one behind. And these are people who, as you pointed out, shared greater risks than we did in many cases. Their families were in the mix while our families are safe and sound uh, back home. And so this is, but this is bigger than a veteran issue. It's, it's not a Biden issue. It's not a Trump issue. It's an American issue. And so we need a whole of society response. And I know you probably get told that meaning Americans, if, 
my message to the American public is if you really want to thank your veterans, join us in welcoming our Afghan allies as they get here, because we need your help. We need your generosity. And there has been so much outreach by the American public for this issue. Um, and we're just super grateful for it. So thank you for having me on today. It's been you know, really a pleasure. Yeah, and, and thank you for joining us today, uh, Colonel Steve Miska. Your insights, I think, have, have painted both a what I would say is a heartbreaking picture of what we've left behind in these combat zones, uh, but also I think this resettlement opportunity and the fact that we still have so many people committed to making things better for our uh, interpreter uh, friends and allies around the world, that there's a, a bit of a hopeful picture about how Americans are continuing, continuing to support our our friends from crisis areas around the world. It's not it's not perfect yet by any means, but uh, maybe. Well, let me ask you this: Your white paper is is that available for for people to go look at and read? Where, where could they find that? Absolutely, it's at um, it's on our website at soft or protecting soft networks. All one word: soft s o s o f t soft right protecting soft networks. S o f t correct protecting soft networks dot org dot org and um it's available for download anybody can go on there and download the white paper uh it's really for like policy wonks probably like for you and me that's okay um, <laughs> you know and uh but yeah it's probably about 20 pages and it outlines a process that the nsc the national security council could follow to implement the policies that would you know really get us better in this space so maybe our, our fellow American citizens uh, could pitch that to their members of Congress and say, look, do what you need to do to remove the barriers to help our executive branch to be more effective in executing uh, this mission. Uh, let me ask you one last question. Baghdad Underground Railroad, your book, where can people find that? So it's available on all the online retailers. Uh, Amazon, of course, uh, being the most prominent. But um, proceeds support the U.S. Veteran Artists Alliance, which is a veteran nonprofit that helps aspiring screenwriters or, uh, you know, novel writers or any veterans who really want to get into the arts. Um, They will help them out for free and they give just incredible advice and tools and um so anyway um that's where people can find it colonel steve miska thank you thanks john so folks that closes this week's edition of national security this week we're on kymn radio am 1080 and fm 95.1 i'm your host john olson thank you for joining us today i look forward to sharing time with you again next wednesday morning at 9 a.m We would love your feedback on National Security This Week here at KYMN Radio, so please take a few minutes to contact us and let us know how we're doing. And folks, make sure you get your vaccination or your booster. Omicron will be here before we know it. Have a fantastic week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.